Well, brothers and sisters, if you would remain standing and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Before I read from a portion of chapter 1 and a verse out of chapter 16, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, gracious Father, we do come before you in the sweet and precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We ask you, Father, to open our eyes to see the glorious truth of Christ in this word, in this letter. A letter written several thousand years ago, but with so much pertinent contemporary importance for us today. Help us to digest it spiritually, help us to comprehend it mentally, and more than anything, help it to shape our testimony, our spiritual lives. Let us be nourished spiritually in Christ so that we might be those trophies of grace that Christ has called us to be not just as individuals, but as a body, as a church. Lord, in this world, let, it be, let us be a light and a beacon of gospel hope in this world. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians chapter one, I wanna read those first three verses and then we're gonna turn and Look at one verse in chapter 16. Hear now the word of the living God. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who are in every place, call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the very last chapter of the book, verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. All along the way, I've been asked a simple question and a good one. Why are we going to be, why are you going to preach through the book of Corinthians? Why that book? And I've given just abbreviated answers to that question each time, not for any good reason, just, just that I too was formulating my own answer to the question all along the way. And so this morning, I want to give a broader, deeper answer to that question. Why are we going to spend the next several months in this book? And I could have added 10 more to the eight reasons that I hope to give you this morning. I could have easily added 10 more. But I think these eight reasons suffice to answer the question. 
The Apostle Paul had a method to his ministry. He was not interested in traveling the countryside and establishing what we might call rural churches. It wasn't because Paul did not think they were important, but Paul had a method in wanting to see the majority of people come to Christ, the largest, the, the largest possible majority to come to Christ. And the way he had chosen to do that was to hit all of the major cities in Asia Minor. Paul focused on those most populated areas to preach the gospel. Now, very similar in our day and time, typically cities are the most corrupt. Now, it's not because cities are corrupt. It's because the people that are there in concentrated bunches, evil finds evil. Bad company likes to hang out with bad company. And bad people do bad things and glorify bad things. And so it's just, it's a greater concentration of evil in one place. And so therefore, it's easy to find evil in a city. But cities in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them. I often laugh to myself when I get on these forums that want to talk about True Christianity is that which is where you're growing your own food, making your own clothes, and that sort of thing. Most of those people talking about it have never done it because that's hard work. And, and, and just to be very blunt and honest about it, it's easier to make a living working and then going to the grocery store and buying the food versus raising the animal, butchering the animal, and doing all of those various things. Nothing wrong with it whatsoever, except that's not the definition of true Christianity. And if that's what you want to do, that's fine and perfect. But it's always telling how we love to get in our little circles. And that was one of the problems with the church at Corinth. They had their little niches. They had their little cliques. And they, well, and these cliques began to pose a serious problem in the church. Now, I don't want to go there yet. But I want to talk about the Apostle Paul going into these cities and preaching the gospel to see the masses come to Christ. He chose those areas that were the most populated. And of course, as I've already said, they were real, just ripe with sin. Corinth was no exception. Corinth had, it was a glorious city. It was a very political city. It held a seat in that whole Asia Minor district, and it was very prominent in economics, prominent in education. And in fact, the city was so corrupt immorally, and it was so dedicated to the, the uh, sexual immorality that there were all kinds of proverbs created, such as, well, that's a Corinthian woman. Or if someone was very powerful in speech because they valued education, um, 
at very, very highly valued education, they would also say, well, that's a Corinthian man, one who could speak, uh, who, who could just draw the masses with their speech. And this is some of the contention that Paul has. Paul, in his second missionary journey, had founded this church. And like all churches, they had repented of their immorality. They had repented of their idolatry. They had repented of trusting so in the world system. And they had come to Christ in a very powerful way. It was a very affluent church. It was a very educated church. It was a very powerful church. A very gifted church. And in one sense, a very superior church. And over time, even as the apostle had left, over time, they began defaulting back to their old ways. They stagnated in their sanctification and sort of gravitated back to, to, to an overemphasis on this education and philosophy of these modern day philosophers or these first century philosophers. And so they begin doing what we do. They begin synchronizing these things with their Christianity. And as they synchronized it, some of them just began to wholesale give themselves over to it as being the dominant influence in their life. And Paul has caught word of this. There's saints at Corinth complaining of the, the downgrading of the congregation the lack of spiritual nourishment, the lack of a Christ-centered focus of the church. And so they began writing the apostle and they began seeking his wisdom and counsel on letting him know, hey, here's the problems that's taking place here. We need you to come and we need you to remedy these things. And so Paul began writing letters. More than likely, this is our second letter. We believe that Paul has already written one other letter that is not in our Bibles. He makes reference of it, and we'll address that when we get there. Paul begins to really take the, uh, the Corinthian church to task. And you can say that Paul is very stern, very very forthright with them because they had so much to offer. Paul is not mixing words whatsoever. He is addressing the sins that they are bringing into the church. Now we could talk about the Christ-centeredness of the book of Corinthians. You can say, well, yeah, yeah, yes, I understand that, Pastor, because all Scripture is Christ-centered. Yeah, that's true. But 1 Corinthians is very Christ-centered. I mean, Jesus is mentioned 50-something times in 16 chapters. Christ is mentioned over 50-something times in these 16 chapters. So we have the name of Jesus mentioned dozens of times. We have his office mentioned, 
his being Messiah. He's the sent one of God. He is the anointed of God. We see that mentioned dozens of times. And yet the word Lord is mentioned almost, well, right at 70 times. His authority, his headship is mentioned more than any of them. And yet when you think about it, what does a carnal, sinful church struggling to embrace and walk with Christ need? They need a Christ-centered realignment. They need a refocus on who Jesus is, his office, his ministry, why he came and why he saved them. And yet, ultimately, you even need to default back to his headship and authority. Because that was part of the problem at Corinth. Who's in charge here? And isn't that what almost every sinful church member gravitates to whenever they fall into sin and the elders begin to address them or even when church friends come to them, they go, oh, wait a minute, you don't have any authority over me. And even when the elders come, I've, again, who are you? Christ is my authority, not you. And this is something that Paul is dealing with. And so when we talk about the, revel, the relevance of the book, brothers and sisters, I think you can already see how important the book is to the modern day church. Well, let's begin to sort of unpack those eight reasons why we're going to spend the next several months in this letter to the church at Corinth. Well, first of all, let me say this. The book itself reflects the current moral downgrade that we are experiencing in our own land, in our own day. Paul, it's not uncommon. This is not anything new. All right, that, that is, it, it's, it, it's, we're not special in this generation. I know we love to think we are. We love to think that no one else has ever experienced anything like we've experienced it. But the moral downgrade of nations is nothing new. Moral downgrade of churches is not new. Paul is actually dealing with that in this letter. He's addressing the moral downgrade. He's addressing all kinds of, of, of factions, the cliques that exist, He's addressing their moral compromise when there's great sin in the congregation, the willingness of the congregation to overlook that sin. And Paul tells them, he says, you have become complicit with it by allowing it in your midst. There was the abuse of the Lord's Supper. There was heresy around rampant with the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. There was the misunderstanding of what true love, well, is. Paul had to address that. The abuse of spiritual gifts. And brothers and sisters, listen. This is why the apostle Paul focuses upon Christ. Now, we hear that. It's cliche almost. It's almost so cliche, you're, you're tempted to just tune me out. 
Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, he's Lord. And the temptation is to not listen to what those, the definitions, the meanings, the power of what those words reflect and intend to convey. And yet that's exactly the Paul's argument all the way through the letter. This letter is addressing this moral downgrade of the church. They started out well, but they're not doing well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. He's reminding them of the power of God. The power of God in what? In their salvation. Notice, brothers and sisters, listen. What were the Corinthians guilty? They were defaulting back to old sinful patterns of life and habit. And Paul says, do you not know that these things that you are now exalting, they're foolishness to God? He doesn't applaud these things. God doesn't highly recognize America, uh, American academia. They don't impress him. He doesn't ooh and ah over the world's wisdom. It's offensive to him. Why? Because the whole target and, and purpose of this worldly wisdom is to defeat God, is to exalt idolatry, is to lead people away from God. And therefore, it's offensive to God. And Paul recognizes this. Notice he deals, he's talking about for the word of the cross. Now listen to me, I could talk, I could stay right here and I could talk. You know, listen, when you go out here and you start talking to people about Jesus, the, now look, as long as it's generic, you're fine. But when you start talking about a, a, a crucified savior, when you start talking about one who has bought you with his blood, when you start talking about one who is the king that's been set upon God's holy hill, when you start talking about the one who's going to come in power and glory and judge heaven and earth, when you start talking about that Jesus, well, then there's a line drawn in the sand. When you start talking about the offense of the cross, that's why Paul says in Corinthians, he says it in Romans, he says it in other places. Peter mentions it. He says, don't you know that Christ is a stumbling block to all who do not believe, but, but precious to those who do. The only Jesus that's tolerated is the Americanized Jesus. You know, the effeminate Jesus. The Jesus that really has, you know, his own viewpoints. But I mean, you can believe what you want to believe, kind of Jesus. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. That's not the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's not the Jesus that Paul is setting forth here. He talks about the word of the cross. It's foolishness to those who's perishing. When you start talking about these things in academic circles, they're going to laugh at you. And that's what Paul is having to address. They have exalted this, this philosophical academia. And Paul goes, do you not know this is just foolishness to God? What you've exalted? When he talks about 
for you who are being saved is the power of God. It was the power of God that what changed your heart. It was the power of God that took out your stony heart and gave you a heart of flesh, the scriptures talk about. It gave you a heart being able to feel the pain of your own sin and guilt, able to cry out to God, Abba, Father, able to, to put away that malice you had for God at one time, but now you have a desire for God, a love for God. And make no mistake about it, if you don't love God, you're not a Christian. Plain and simple. He's not your life coach. He's not your greatest philosopher. He's not just a good dude. He's God's son. He's the savior of the world, the only one that's been given the name by which men must be saved. He is the only way to God the Father. All men must come to the Father through him. He is both son of God, son of man, Lord. It's the power of God. He changes us. He changes our mind about God. That's what Paul's reminding them of in chapter one. He said, this is the way it happened to you. Don't you remember these things? Remember what? They're, they're slipping. They're backsliding. Is it not the tale of every church? And I say every church because none of us are immune to sin, right? None of us are immune to backsliding. These are why these letters are so important because we ought to read them and take them to heart. Either we might be heading there or we've been there or we have experienced that power of God and we need to be reminded of this can happen to us and all of these various things. Nevertheless, it's important that we recognize all of us are subject to this. Look at verse 23 or uh, chapter one, verse 23 and 24 says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I want to tell you for the Christian, the real Christian, the true Christian, Christ is precious. He's the object of great delight, great joy, great love. I, I, I mean, it, it's like, I, I don't serve the Lord. You don't serve the Lord. I mean, when he comes and does that saving, amazing work of grace in your heart, you don't sit there and go, oh, it, it, it's about, I got to do these things. No, we serve the Lord out of love. He saved me. He bought me, undeserving of any of that grace, and therefore, I love him, and I want to live for him. Brothers and sisters, that is the heart. That's why I read the last verse, or that from the last chapter of Corinthians, Paul makes it really clear. We don't just add Jesus to our pantheon of Great people. We just don't add him, you know, to the catalog of, of just, well, influential people. These are the men that shaped my life. No, this is the son of God who came to your life in power. To do what? To do what? Change you. 
to, to turn you from an enemy of God to a lover of God. That's power. That's power. When churches begin experiencing that moral downgrade, beloved, it's always going to be the heart of the church is their love for God, their love for Christ is waning. It's lacking. Same way in our personal life. It's the same way in our personal lives. We always need to repent and default back to, Lord, renew my love for you. Don't renew my obedience. Obedience follows love. When you love your wives, you serve them. When you love your husbands, you serve them. When you love your children, you serve them. Children, when you love your parents, you serve them. Pastors, congregants, the same thing. Paul even addresses that because part of the issues at, at this church was that they were railing against the apostle and they're going, oh, look, he's not nearly as polished in his preaching as we are. And Paul was not an impressive preacher per se. He lacked the oratory skills, if, as it were, as these, philosoph or these philosophers and they used it against Paul. And Paul said, I didn't come to you with, with, with what? Flattering speech, but with simple words of Christ. My goal, meaning Paul was saying, my goal was not to ever exalt myself in your midst. That's not my goal, which is the goal. That was the goal of the, the orators. They wanted to exalt themselves. They wanted people to applaud them. They wanted people to come hear them speak, to buy the tickets, if you will. You know, wear the T-shirts, right? Visit the website. Check out my YouTube channel, my Instagram. Become a follower. Paul said, that's not me. I came to you to point you to Jesus I have only one purpose in my ministry, and that is to exalt Jesus Christ as Lord in your life. To set him before you as the object of your faith, hope, and love. That's why Paul had to address the whole doctrine of love. They were confused about it. And so Paul had to explain it to them and address it so that they would have no excuse, so they would know what it is to love God and love others. So the book addresses a moral downgrade of that congregation. And it's not just written to the congregation. If you look right there in verse one, it says, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brothers, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So it wasn't just to Corinth. It was written to the church of God, even though it, it was particular to Corinth, but it's written to the whole church of God. And that's us here this morning. A second reason that this book, I think, will profit us is that it gives us answers to this downgrade. I've already mentioned that main focus, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ, obviously. But that is but the goal. That's the main object. But there were other uh, subordinate 
reasons and remedies to this. And Paul deals with this as he talks about a minister. Because again, like in most morally compromised churches, you want to, well, you want to put off authority. And Paul says, no. This is why Paul opened the letter the way he did. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I didn't call myself to this office. I'm not a self-called preacher of the gospel. God called me. I'm here preaching the gospel and ministering to you by the will of God in Christ. So if you want to fight me, Paul says, you'll have to take it up with God. And there were other things. Paul has to deal with this disunity. He had to deal with this idea of these cliques and factions within the church beginning to disrupt the peace and the unity and the purity of the church. And Paul is having to address those things. But Paul starts with the authority uh, that God has in establishing ministers and, well, putting ministers to work in the church. You know, it's, um, we would talk about the, uh, you know, any number, the church has always responded differently to these, the, the moral downgrade. And when I say moral downgrade, I mean, there, there is an unprecedented feature to our day and time that certainly Paul didn't deal with. I mean, Paul wasn't dealing with transgender confusion. He wasn't dealing with it. I mean, there was, you know, he, was, he did deal with effeminate men, and he addresses those things. Homosexuality is not new. And sexual immorality is not new. But even in our day and time, we have to take what is before us and we have to press into those situations the, well, the authority of God, the, the, the crown rights, the headship of Jesus Christ, the will of God, the words that Jesus spoke. Now listen, this is the way he ended the book of Matthew and well, it's played out here clearly in this letter. This is what Jesus says to his disciples who would become apostles and this applies to the apostle Paul he says in verse 19 of Matthew 28 go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo I am with you to the I'm with you always even to the end of the age so that's what Jesus is commendation was to the apostles and Paul is an apostle. He's teaching them the things that Christ told him to teach. And you say, well, that's not my words. This is, this is, beloved, listen to me. Pastors have opinions and those opinions are his opinions and not the church's opinions about things. The overall focus of a church and the ministry, a godly ministry, is not the pastor's proclivities or interests. It's Christ. 
It's growing the body up in Christ. It's seeing that the body become mature in the doctrine of the person and work of Jesus Christ and how that doctrine distills out in their lives and body and community. That's the goal and that's the purpose. Like I said, Paul was not interested in followers. He's interested in making disciples of Christ. And so Paul begins answering so many of these questions, addressing them uh, as, as, as he says, I think it's in chapter three, Notice in chapter three, verse one, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. What is Paul saying? Paul says, listen, in in this admonition, I'm having to treat you like children because that's what you've become. You've become spiritual infants in in your compromise, in in, in your lackadaisical attitude, in your lack of perseverance in the person and work of Christ. Remember, it wasn't that everybody in the congregation was succumbed to this backslidden condition, but so many had, and Paul is even having to address the whole church because of what? Because of them allowing it. So this book will help us remedy similar situations in our own church, in our own lives. And that's important. Thirdly, uh, this book addresses the power of influence, both negative and positive. Now let me jump back to the conversation we just had about influencers. See, we don't, we don't watch YouTube anymore because it's educational or that it's funny or entertaining. No, what do we call YouTubers? Influencers. They're influencers. What do you mean Influencers. Their design is to influence you towards some way of life or some product or something of that nature. So notice that there's a paradigm shift here. Well, now that's that's not anything new. Paul is having to address those philosophical influencers of his day. Those that were very powerful in rhetoric, those were very powerful and oratory, those that could speak and be so descriptive in their language, it was powerful. Listen, brothers and sisters, someone who speaks well is a very powerful tool to convincing you of either good or bad. Our ears are usually drawn to people that speak well, that can articulate their thoughts and intentions, or articulate your thoughts and intentions and lead you down the path they want you to go. I've heard one minister say that our nation is full of 
powerful influencers, but not for the good. Not for the good. And it's, it's masterful that we have media that are only 30 seconds long, one minute long, maybe two minutes long, that have such a powerful influence. But when you add a hundred of those up a night that you just scroll and watch through, that's a long influence strain. You can say, well, pastor, I, I mean, I, I'll watch a bunch of stuff about Jesus. I, okay, I, I, that's out there. Remember I said both negative and positive. Paul did say, imitate me in this letter as I imitate Christ. Paul recognizes the power of influence and he is trying to divert their attention off of those influencers that would lead them away from Christ. He says, no, 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 imitate me as I lead you to Christ. And those are the people you want to be influenced by. Those are the people that are worthy of influencing you to those that can lead you to Christ, those that would help you understand Christ, those that would keep you with Christ and always warn you about leaving Christ. But just make sure it's the Christ of Scripture. And that's why you can never get rid of the main influence in your life which is the word of God. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. I, I know we are trotting well-worn paths here, rightly so, but there's no special remedy to our moral downgrade than the word of God and the spirit of God powerfully working in our lives. And you cannot drink in, eat up, and digest enough of the Word of God. You can't. You can't. You need to read it. You need to memorize it. You need to listen to it read. I, I cannot impress upon you enough to, to there's free readings of the Word of God online. You don't even have to pay for them where you can listen to the word of God with notebook and pencil, pen, whatever, in hand. Type. You can type it if you want to. And take notes and listen to it over and over and over and over. We have become educated fools in this land. We have heard of the downgrading of our mental capacity with social media. The, the, the effects it has upon brain waves and patterns of our own thinking because we have accustomed to think to ourselves in 30 second segments. And yet, we don't think there's anything wrong with that. And yet we can't, we can't figure out why it's impossible to sit through a 30-minute sermon. Not that I preach 30 minutes. 
I, I, listen, this is the problem across the church. I heard one minister say, he said, listen, and he was in a denomination that had went, gone from the average preaching being 45, 50 minutes to 35, 45 minutes to 20, 25 minutes. That's not an exaggeration. And he said, here's my problem. It's not stopping. We've worked our way down to 20 minutes. What's next? Why? We can barely read. I mean, it takes a few minutes usually to read and do an introduction. I mean, where are we going with this? He said, here's my problem. My problem is where is this taking us? And why is it not being addressed? Because what the church has done, look, you're talking about the moral downgrade. What the church has done is conveniently acquiesced to the American psyche, to the spirit of the age, to the American culture. We just got to, you know, we're going to do our church thing and we're out of here. And it becomes less and less and less. Listen, let me say it this way. It'd be some powerful sermons preached in 20 minutes. I've heard them. But you cannot ignore the fact that the reason you've gone to 20 minutes is because we just don't want too much of Jesus. Just don't want. Get me in and out. It's, a, it's become a drive-through worship service. We can get you in and out of here in about 35, 40 minutes. And then you can go on with your day. Brothers and sisters, that's a moral downgrade. And this is what's happening at Corinth. And so these influencers had a, pow- a powerful negative effect upon the church, just like they do today. Just like they do today. I'm, gonna, uh, I'm not going to have time to go through too many of these, but I want to impress this point. I, I want to address this. There are some really good teaching online. You can find some really good Bible teachers, expositors online. I mean, solid ones. But that's not your church. That's not a church. That's icing on the cake. That's not your church. And and yet what we have done is we've gone to those to be fed and we use the church as our social playground to come see our friends, come shake hands, to come show up because we're members. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to sound arrogant. But what God has laid on my heart for you is for you. And I'm not going to apologize for it. The prayer sitting you before Christ, praying for you and your families, asking the Lord, what would he have me give his sheep? And for months and for months laying this book before my eyes. This is for you. And what I'm going to ask you to do is, are you going to listen to it? 
Are you going to let that out there influence you because they're better? They preach better. I'm not saying not to listen to that. I'm saying this is what Christ has laid before you as a body. Right? That's a supplement. This is the meal. This is what you take before God and you say, Lord, bless my preacher to bring the meat and meat and potatoes. Bless him, Lord. Help him. Give him the words I need to hear. Why do we struggle listening to the word of God? How much prayer have you put into it? Well, if he was a better preacher, I could be a better Christian. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, all preachers worth their salt and understand their deficiencies. But I can tell you, if you come here with a humble mind and heart, and you've prayed up, and you've prayed the preacher up, and you've prayed yourself up, and you've prayed this text up, I promise you the Lord will feed you. He'll feed you. He'll strengthen you. He'll show you the power and the glory of Jesus. He'll show you the glory that he, sh- that he has shown you from the very beginning of changing your life and heart. He'll show you his worthiness of you to continue on in the faith. And don't get sidetracked by the, by the bells and the whistles and the Christmas lights of the world. Because they're there. It's beautiful out there, but it's deadly. And Paul addresses the importance of these ministers and their place and their usefulness in the church. Paul pleads with them toward the end of the book. I want you to read the book. Uh, He pleads with them. Look, I'm sending Timothy to you. Be kind to him. I mean, why do you say that to a congregation? I'm sending Timothy there to minister to you. Be sweet to him. Well, they girls, they weren't sweet people. There comes a time when we have to go away with the southern niceties and just say what needs to be said. Be kind to him. He's there to minister to you. He loves the Lord and he loves you and he wants to feed you Christ and listen to him. And then send him on to me. I need him. I mean, Paul, and then again, he tells them, he said, listen, when you come together, Take up an offering for the church at Jerusalem. Don't just think about yourselves. The church in Jerusalem is suffering under persecution, political tyranny. Many of them have lost their jobs. Why? Because because as these Jews were converted to Christ, many of their Jewish brethren fired them. I mean, let's just put it in layman's terms. They got fired from their jobs because they became Christians. Because following Christ was seen as an enemy to Judaism. Rightly so. So they lost their house. They lost their lands. They, they, they were struggling. They were even getting exiled and kicked out of the city. How were they going to get? They were refugees, if you will. Legitimate refugees. Not like the ones we have coming across the border. 
They had nowhere to go. They had lost everything they had. And Paul says, remember your brethren in Jerusalem. Because when I come, I'm going to take up this offering and I'm going to go give it to them. I mean, don't be so consumed with yourselves that you miss the broader glory of the body of Christ. And now let me end with this because we're going to take the Lord's Supper and I'll get to these other points next week. Paul had to get on to him for abusing the Lord's Supper. They were coming and, well, drinking all the wine and becoming drunk. They were eating up all the food and and the poor of the congregation did not get any. You can see the factions, the, the, the various cliques were dominating the church and, and those with more, well, dominated those with less. And Paul s- severely rebukes them. In fact, um, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11 and then that'll help us move into the Lord's Supper. He talks about their abuse, and I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to read right here. Let me begin reading at verse 17. He says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's, is it not to eat the Lord's supper? For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you, Paul says. Now before I read the other part, let me just make a few comments here. In verse 22, this is the gist of it. Paul says, why would you abuse the house of God? Why would you mistreat God's house when you don't mistreat your own house? Why would you do these things in God's house? Which is what the church is. He said, these things that you don't even do in your house, you're doing in God's house and that's to be praised? He said, no, I will not praise you. In fact, I will rebuke you. And not only does he rebuke them, he warns them. Now let's read the rest of the text. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the 
new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But as a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number, of, a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that he, we will not be condemned along with the world. Now, our closing, our closing comments. All throughout this book, Paul says, do you not know that judgment begins with the household of God? You, you're, don't worry about the world out here. The world acts like the world. The problem is when the church wants to incorporate the world into the house of God. He says, and all along the way, judgment is happening within the house of God. He's disciplining his children. And Paul says, when we come to the supper, when we come to drink the cup of the Lord and we come to eat the body of Christ, we should not find ourselves guilty of walking in both worlds, abusing his house, exalting the world. He says, do you not know that if you judge yourselves rightly, how do we do that? Lord, I'm, forgive me, for I have not rested in you completely this week. I have exalted the world. I have trusted in, in worldly things. I've even long gone after worldly things, worldly ways. Forgive me, O Lord. He says, when you judge yourself rightly, then you will not be judged by God. But when you come and partake of the supper and abuse the house of God, and you do not see that you are in need of judgment, he says, then judgment shall fall upon you because the Lord will not be mocked. Remember, it's God's household. And the whole book of Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, is educating us on how to live in God's house, how to be God's children, how to live in the household of God with one another, peacefully, lovingly, maturely, understanding differences and all the various things that come into what it is to live with one another. He says, oh, if you do not judge yourselves rightly, God will come and judge you. And it will not be a good thing. When you ignore yourself, beloved, God says, then I'll have to take that up. So how do we come to the supper? Honestly, sincerely, openly. Lord, here I am. I am thy servant. And I love you, but Lord, my love waxes and wanes and I need you to come and minister to me. I need your ministers to minister to me. And I need to pray for your ministers. I need to pray that they instruct me and teach me and hold me accountable.
Brothers and sisters, I pray that none of us would be like so many I've experienced. They just won't be corrected. They just won't be held accountable. And they slap the hand of Almighty God of those that have been ordained to come and help them grow in Christ. It never ends well. It never ends well. Beloved, we are saturated with selfishness in this culture. Saturated. You can go online and you can listen to any Christian tell you whatever you want to hear about anything in life. I know, I know right now there are people sitting in good churches. When I say good churches, I mean churches that preach against sin. Living with one another. Don't listen. Don't listen. Won't be told what to do. And they'll go and visit all these, and they'll, they'll go to good churches and will never, ever heed the gospel that's preached. They won't be that person. Because God will come and bring judgment. And he does it in this life. Now, he's definitely going to do it in the next, but he does it here. And that's why Paul said, beloved, some of you are sick. Some of you are weak. Some of you have died. Paul's saying that's the hand of God. You don't think God's powerfully moving in his, in his house? Beloved, let the fear of God reign over you. This, not a, this is not a small thing. We are contending with the, the sovereign of the world here. And yes, he knows your constitution. Yes, he knows your weakness. Yes, he knows you. But don't act like you can sin against God and somehow talk your way out of it. Because you can't. Be honest, come before God, prostrate before him, open up your mind, open up your mouth, open up your heart to him, say, oh God, save me and keep saving me from this present world that I live in. I need it. Don't leave me where I am. Don't be satisfied where you are, brothers and sisters. Keep growing in Christ. That's the gospel. Let's pray. And Father, we have the blessed privilege of looking at just the opening of this book and considering just a few of its reasons that we should study it and listen to it. Lord, the important reasons. Lord, we're eager to get into it. We're eager to open up verse after verse after verse and feast upon, Lord, this spiritual food for our own nourishment. We pray now that you would prepare us for this supper, for our engagement with Christ, for our fellowship and communion with him, and for our fellowship and communion with one another. For we are members of one another. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to lay before us the importance of what it is to follow Jesus and not men 
And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.